welcome to a special Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers when the 1960s Batman series started on TVAM and I woke my parents up to ask them if it would be suitable to watch, as if the Wide Awake Club were suddenly going to be showing Faces of Death 3 at 7.15 on a Saturday morning. I'm Ben Baker, author, podcaster, semi-professional dogstroker and occasional guest on these Tim Hewn shows. You can find me and my nonsense at Linktree, that's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Ben Baker Books or on Twitter at Ben Baker Books as well, if Twitter's still there by the time this goes out. And joining me to discuss something that he remembers and some men on the internet are at great pains to tell you they also remember <laughs> is Tim Worthington. To use your own opening cat's phrase at you, who are you and what are you doing in my house? Sorry, is that it? I don't really listen. I'm not, I'm not sure. Well, first of all, thank you for actually getting your bio in first. We didn't have to turn it back to you and have the whole thing about, you know, was that an advert where the yogs go to suddenly appear and start singing and dancing? Anyway, what I'm up to where you can find me is normally hosting this, quite often with you as a guest, but with lots of other people as well. Also hosting It's Good Except It Sucks, up to all kinds of mischief on timworthington.org. And I've just published, which ties in with what we're here to talk about, Top of the Box Volume 2, the complete guide to every album released by BBC Records and Tapes. Yes, it's absolutely true. I have listened to them all, including all of the bird song ones. And it's just a fascinating <laughs> story, all the way from in 1967, the first one. It's a very posh man talking about how big space is. And the most recent one from 1991 is a bearded Russian singing about how wonderful it is that the Berlin Wall has come down. And in between, you've got all this amazing stuff, you know, all these albums from Forgotten Schools programmes or the Welsh Top of the Pops. And obviously, there's all <laughs> kinds of things like the goons and dad's army and so on that you've heard of not nine o'clock news play school all those doctor who albums all kinds of things that you would think would never have had an album including the presenters and guests of woman's hour talking about roses in different media forms which is possibly the most bizarre album i've ever heard and it has violet carson from coronation street with a poem she's written about roses she should only write about violet they should have got in <laughs> Rose Royce. BBC fakery, but yeah, I'm really actually quite proud of this. I appreciate it's quite a niche work, but... I don't know if it is that niche, you know. It is niche in respect to writing about just one record label, but when you actually look at the list of things that came out on the BBC Records label by going through your book, you'll see so many familiar names. I mean, Doctor Who is kind of the main sort of one that a lot of people recognise and stuff by the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, but it really does sort of run the gamut, as you said there from sort of speech work to pop singles and that's kind of what this special looks unfamiliar is about isn't it it is because i wanted to talk about ironically something that didn't end up on an album although it potentially nearly did which was in 1986 the east enders spin-off single something out of nothing by letitia dean and paul j Medford. and we should clarify right now for those listening only in audio that that is something out of nothing outer is one t only one scene outer, no wasted here, because hipness, and it was a hip show then. When this came out in 1986, EastEnders really was the biggest thing on television by far. Well, it was only just starting to become that, because people forget when it very first started. You know, I remember the launch, even before the big trailers introducing all the cast, there was this one where suddenly it just came on between two programmes. It's a bit like Gabo, 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 where it had kind of shadowy, unidentified people walking around the square, obviously. Obviously, you know, because they've not cast people or filmed anything yet. And they said, the EastEnders are coming to BBC One and had a whistle like... 
that's it. That's all it was. And then there was the big launch. I remember Wendy Richard being on Wogan to pluck it about two weeks before it was on. All kinds yeah. of things. And then it just didn't take off at first. I think part of the reason it took off was the things like this was the multimedia element. But there's that whole stretch where for about six months, I'm surprised it stayed on air. It was probably only because they'd invested so much money in it. that You know, it would have cost them more to cancel it at that point. Ironically, which is the case as we speak now as well. And I've just built a was it 80 million new set and there's about 3 million watching a week which again even then I suspect when it wasn't as popular it would still been bringing in what 8 oh, yeah, million oh yeah and I think that was considered a disaster but it was only about yeah. I think about 6 months in what really happened was the tabloids started to get obsessed with the cast because there were always stories about them I mean famously mm. there was you know Leslie Grantham's background but all the younger ones were always up to all kinds this unfortunately is a double edged thing because David Scarborough who was the original Mark Fowler I really want to mention this part of this he couldn't quite handle fame also he got suspended from the show because mark was supposed to be a racist originally and he was given the script and he said right. he read it and he said i'm not going to say these words to paul j medford i can't do that to his face and you know he asked them yeah. to be right and they wouldn't he was suspended he came back a couple of times didn't really work he then yeah. was suffering very badly from depression the tabloids hounded him to a hospital he was in and he killed himself and you know that's kind of an unfortunate I don't want to say legacy of the rise yeah. of extenders but it shows what power the press have but then, I mean they were obsessed with when they obviously introduced gay characters and then they kissed and then they shared a bed together can you imagine such things but that's it that's, that's the era that something out of nothing was kind of born in as you say, it was actually quite a bit of lightness, I guess, in amongst all the Wolf Oh, yes, because it came out of a storyline where I don't think they quite knew what to do with the younger characters in EastEnders at first, because obviously they had the teenage pregnancy storyline for Michelle, and they'd lost Mark for the reason yeah. of just state. So the others were just sort of hanging around being teenagers. And so Simon May, who was the EastEnders theme composer, had been pushing all kinds of tie-in singles. Some were official, some weren't. There was, the actual theme single was quite, you know, a reasonable hit, actually, even when the show was wasn't doing that well. It was Killing Time by Barry Blood, which was supposedly the theme from Angie and Tony's Affair, which basically meant song that was playing in the Vic sometimes. <laughs> it was Anita Dobson, Did Anyone Can Fall In Love, we you know, with the lyrics to the theme. Yeah, well, we'll come back to the hits ones. Are we coming shortly? back to the unofficial yeah, things that, like Subterranean Homesick Blues? I, I mean, that, I'll say quite happily now. Tom Watts' cover of the Bob Dylan song, I hope you're going to put a clip in it, because it's insane. Yes, I am going to... And also, there is I Can't Get a Ticket to the World Cup by Pete Dean, who played Pete Bale, which Pete Bob Dean. Fisher talked about on here. And I actually had to plead yes. for somebody to rip a copy for me because it's not anywhere. I mean, you just say that like <laughs> it's a surprise. But yeah, they obviously thought, you know, what can we do with these characters? Why don't they form a band? Now, the first thing I should say is this was before I was the age where I would have been in bands. And it bore no relation to what happened even to me at their age being in bands. But... 
at the time, I really liked it. I was really invested in this, like, gentle little storyline about them forming a band and all falling out. So who's there? Obviously, we've got Letitia Dean, who's Sharon Watts, and Paul J. Bedford, who's Kelvin Carpenter. Who else was in this? Ian Beale was on drums. Simon Wicks, Wixie, was on keyboards. Who also brought in Eddie Hunter, who I'm going to come back to, who was the guitarist in this old band, came in on guitar. He also got an older mate from an old band to audition, played by Zoot Money, the 60s blues musician. (laughs) But also, they had their manager, Harry Reynolds, who was very, very clearly based on Billy Bragg and written by somebody who did not like Billy Bragg. All right. a lot of it about and so they obviously formed a band called well the they band, were initially called B-A-N-N-E-D. dog market N-N-E-D. because of rolling <laughs> the dog running into the market and they thought there's a name writes itself yeah writes itself it's and it was also because it was a storyline where kelvin and harry and their mate tessa were getting involved in lefty politics and they wanted the band to reflect quote decay in the capitalistic society so dog market seemed like an appropriate name <laughs> and then they played one gig in the queen vic and then watts pulled the power so that's why they were the band, because Den had banned them. Oh, the man banned them from doing songs. It's interesting, again, because as you say, people who are, have been in bands and stuff, you kind of, you know, you, you're scrappy for a long time. Uh, there is a little bit of the, you remember Pugwall? <laughs> I try not to remember Pugwall. I never understood the obsession with it I even at the time. Pug- but it had that kind of thing. It was like, oh, well, you just play that and play that. All of a sudden we're all in sync and it's beautiful. Yeah, kind of thing. They very quickly sort of find they the do. Thing, and the they? only other songs you see them rehearsing are "You to Me" or "Everything" and "Can't Get By Without You" by the Real Thing. Both of which have recently been re-released or so been in the charts. But it was mainly something out of nothing, yeah. written by Wixie, which. They chose over a song Harry had written, which I distinctly remember this. It had the lyrics, Are you slave or master? Are you mice or men? Brick or alabaster? Now, the only other song I have heard the word alabaster in, you might be ahead of me, is there is a song on the Blue Tones' first album, Expecting to Fly. I don't know what the song is called, because by that point I was thinking, Are you still going on, album by the Blue Tones? I just remember (laughs) hearing say alabaster and thought, they watched EastEnders, didn't they? (laughs) So, yeah, that's basically the general story. How long did it run, I think the storyline? months, actually, because they had to do the whole thing of Harry gradually alienating everyone and he fired Wixie and it culminated in a kind of home bargains KLF stunt where he clearly thought he was Paul Morley without ZTT, where he entered them in the Battle of the Bands <laughs> and swapped there. Now, I don't know what understand why they had the backing tape for playing live, but this is a dialogue, this is a storyline, he swapped the backing tape and it sounded terrible and they came last and he was kind of well it's a stunt against Mm. the man and that's when the band collapsed and i say they were never seen again eddie turned up the following year at kelvin's 18th birthday party and also hey sharon look who's here it's eddie and he said that harry was managing a band in twickenham and that was the last that was heard of the band well apparently not apparently ian beale found a tape of them in about 2010 something like that and played some of them went oh do you remember we're in that band and apparently that was found by much amusement <laughs> by the but other than that yeah as you say wix is kicked out of the band so he's a very sad man obviously this is nick berry the heart 
heartthrob of the time. And of course, he goes off to sadly write on the pub piano, Every Loser Wins, his song, which ended up being number one for three weeks. It only slipped to number two by the time that Something Out of Nothing charted. And it did chart. It wasn't quite as big a hit. It got to number 12, didn't it, I think? I was one of the people who bought it, so I helped propel it there. But yeah, the whole... I mean, that then fed into a second storyline, which was that Lofty, when his relationship with Michelle broke down, became obsessed with Every Loser Wins and kept playing it on the tape on the loop, eventually sliding down his bedroom door in time to it. But yeah, Nick Berry, I'll be fair to him, he had an album on BBC Records and Tapes, which you can tell from the cover he didn't really want to do it. I mean, on the cover of Every Loser Wins, the single, apparently he deliberately turned up unshaven for the photo shoots because he didn't like... He'd been in bands. He'd been in, actually, a reasonably successful scar band called The Sharp Young Men. But he was a keyboard player. He wasn't a front man. He didn't want to be a front man. And he did this album, obviously under duress for BBC Records and Tapes, where there's all kinds of songs like So Easy and It Seemed Like a Good Idea at the Time, which probably sums it up. Also, he does a cover of the Go-Go's version of Cool Jerk. All right. And, you know, shouts like, keep rocking to the session musicians and stuff. <laughs> but he didn't do a smash hit where he basically he said, oh God, I can't sing. That's just all the echo machine. And yeah, I don't really want to be doing this. I should be concentrating mm. on my acting. So he then ends up a couple of years later doing Heartbeat and doing exactly the same thing. Well, yeah, I mean, that's it. It was like, write the theme tune, sing the theme tune. Although he didn't write, as you say, Simon May wrote it, as he did Anyone Can Fall In Love and something like that and nothing. And for a time, like, it was on a, it was on a good old dinner set. Anyone Can Fall In Love was just falling out the chart when Nick Barry went into the chart and then something out of nothing came in as that was going. And for a time, it seemed like he was just going to, like, which character's getting a single next? <laughs> well, he also did the Howard's Way theme, which is a huge hit. And he had an album mm. called Simon's Way, again on BBC Records and Tapes, where, you know, it's just like he redid all of his themes and so on. And that sold in huge mm. quantities as well. So Simon May's a bit of a, not quite an unsung pop star of the 80s, but definitely, you know, in the same sort of bracket as, I suppose, some of that Andrew Lloyd Webber was at that point, where they had these massive selling original cast albums that nobody mm. noticed because they weren't on the cover of Number One magazine or chatting to Lola Lush on the inside front page or whatever. But they sold as much as, not as much as Graceland or anything, but you know you know what I mean. They were in that... Yeah, a good amount. Probably yeah. sold as much as, like, the Joshua Tree did. I'm not joking there. Horror, I actually certainly. think that's probably the oh, case. Oh, no. I mean, as you said, that this... So something like nothing peaked at 12 in November 1986. I actually had a look at the top 40 that it came from. It entered at 67, so it had gone quite quickly up the chart. And it, at this point, it was between True Blue by Madonna and Ask by the Smiths, which kind of says it all about where 1986 was, really, music-wise, Three doesn't it? singles as well. I was expecting something yeah. ridiculous to be like MC Micah J and DJ Sven or something to be on the other side, but no, three absolute belters there. Yeah, you got but Call Me Al in there as well. It's apt, actually, because there is a bit of everything going on in pop at the time. You sort of, it was a good mix of stuff, and it's kind of this singles, lots of big synth stings, wailing guitars, group syncopated vocals, repetition, 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 you, you get the general idea, but it's weird. It sounds perfectly fitting in that world. It doesn't sound like... It sounds like a hit single, which is weird for EastEnders because it sounds out of place in that for being too slick. 
but it sounds perfect for the pop charts. It really does. And one thing is, I've tried to find out who played on it, apart from Simon May, obviously. I've not been able to find out, but the reason I'm curious... Firstly, the first clue is the B-side of it, Times Square. It's basically a jam around the sequence of pattern for something out of nothing. You know, okay. it is just that. Believe me, the only place you will find that is if anyone has the single or the 12-inch. There was a 12-inch with extended versions on. Oh, of course. It's 986. <laughs> but what makes me curious is, first of all, Simon Henderson, who played Eddie, had been a child actor. He was notably he was in Grange Hill. Apparently, he's also an extra in Star Wars. But by oh, this yeah. point, he was branching out as a session guitarist, and he had his own studio. So, you know, it's an ideal fit for the role. And he wasn't a very demanding role, really. He just had to look a bit... Well, he looked a bit like Billy Idol with pink highlights, I suppose. <laughs> Is it like the people who aren't Rodney or Daniel Peacock when they have that band in Holy Force and Arts? Yes, pretty much like that. But <laughs> it seems logical to me he would have played a guitar solo on the actual recording. Mm. The other thing is, I've no idea about Adam Woodyatt's actual musical ability, but when you watch, because there's a few performances on YouTube actually from EastEnders, his drumming is not, I wouldn't say it was world-class, but it's not the ridiculous miming you'd expect. He hits so the beats. Completely, yeah. So I do wonder how much input they had. I mean, obviously it was credited to Letitia Dean and Paul J. Meb because they were the singers and they were the photogenic ones. And they performed it on Saturday Super Soul in sort of matching kind of leopard print weird shirt. I was, I was going to ask you how you describe the matching outfits. It's like the pelt of an extinct animal, but, you know, one that really wanted to die. It's like a onesie <laughs> in three parts. Yeah, it's fascinating. You said, no, they didn't do Top of the Pops, but they did quite a lot of the kids' shows, I'm guessing. That Saturday Superstar one is apparently on YouTube as the official video. <laughs> I honestly don't think they had an official video for it. Yeah. I can't see them spending that much. I mean, the video for Every Loser Wins was Nick Berry sitting outside the cafe. Which he did a lot. Can you imagine if you start singing halfway through someone brings egg chips and beans? It's, I'm sorry. It's, it's interesting, actually. Letitia Dean's got a good voice, you know, certainly for this kind of pop. And Medford sort of is also there. <laughs> well, he, to be fair to him, he was in the original production of Five Guys Named Mo, and I think he's done a lot of musical theatre since then. Oh, it's not bad. It's just not the centre, shall we say. But the original idea for it was because they did shortly after EastEnders started the label did an EastEnders sing-along album where they all sang sort of pub favourites oh with a pub piano I can't remember who sings I'm Henry VIII I am but it's all kinds of things like that <laughs> you know with like oh Ethel and Lou singing old wartime knees ups but Letitia Dean does all the nice girls love a sailor and it's an absolute you know how old was she at that point she absolutely roars it in a brilliant way I remember her doing it on a programme we don't mention anymore a girl wrote in said I'd like to sing it with her because I want to be her when she sings it you know which is a lovely thing tainted by the programme that it was on I'm guessing we're not using the word fix at any point not now then we aren't no <laughs> not now not now or then no but yeah it's surprising she didn't do anything more musically I suppose she just wanted to concentrate on acting but also the thing is people have this weird idea I don't even think despite you know the hammering it gets when it comes up on whenever the repeat Top of the Pops big hits in 1986 I don't think Every Loser Wins is a bad song it might not be what most people choose to listen to but it's all right as far as it goes this is a good song and very well mm. done and i will challenge anyone on that it's just somehow because people have got this singing soap stars thing going on they've decided they must yeah. be it's not kevin kennedy's album is it oh bulldog nation <laughs> i remember that i didn't mind that actually that single because again i think a lot of the times with these they fall into two camps you soap stars there's them who can't sing but someone says hey you're famous do you want to do a song and then you've got people like him 
were very clearly, and I suppose uh, Tom Watt to agree, kind of like frustrated indie stars. Yes, you know, that's <laughs> like really exactly want to be it. Because yeah. they were hanging out, like I would say, Tom Watts got New Order in that Subterranean Homesick Blues video. And I would say Kennedy used to hang around with Johnny Marr, didn't he, and all that. And as you say, Soap Stars, sort of, this is before Kylie, which is when it kind of spiraled, I guess. But it's interesting, you say it's like the pub sing-along EastEnders album, and Coronation Street did something very similar, didn't they? Like, oh, let's all uh, have a fun. But there wasn't, like, an album which collated all of these hits, which seems, in retrospect, kind of a bit of a missed goal, really. Yeah, it's one of the things I haven't nailed is I have a very, very strong suspicion that, you know, they were thinking towards a The Band album. Two hit singles from that project. That must have been on their minds. And around that time, there are a few empty catalogue numbers in the BBC Records and Tapes catalogue. And whereas with the book on the singles, I did have access to a log that, you know, listed all of the unreleased things on there. There wasn't one for the album. So I've really only said where I absolutely knew that something would have gone in like like Spaceships of the Mind in the late 70s, which is a documentary series involving the BBC Visual Effects Department. And one of them had actually written the sleeve notes for it. So he was able to confirm that to me. The Keith Moon comedy album that they started recording. And there's only one logical place that could have gone. A couple of small films related things. There's logical gaps where they would have gone that ultimately didn't come out. But anything that wasn't 100% clear that, you know, there was an album half finished gathering dust somewhere, I didn't mention. But I'm fairly, fairly certain that one of those catalogue numbers would have been for if not of the band album, at least a Letitia Dean and Paul J. Member brackets featuring Nick Berry. Album. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I would say the Nick Berry one maybe have just taken precedence, but because again, as you say, EastEnders took a bit to go, but when it did hit big, it really hit big. And it was like, I would say it was the national conversation for, I'd say, when do you reckon that stopped? I mean, EastEnders is so popular that in 1986, they actually, instead of having a New Year's Eve programme, they have an episode of East, a brand new episode of EastEnders at half 11, which then goes into the Big Ben times. <laughs> it's like, that's how popular it was. And people stayed in for it. Like, you got 20 million viewers or whatever. It's like, it went ridiculous. And obviously not just this, all this sort of spin-off stuff. I mean, as somebody who watched it avidly at first, and I think I probably bailed by the early 90s, I'll be honest about that. But just from general observation, I think at first... They mastered the thing of the characters being more important than the storylines. And, you know, it would be things like Dirty Den Shocker or Are You Having an Arthur Fowler? As the tabloids, like, mm. tastefully put it when Arthur had a nervous breakdown. But later it became, you know, like EastEnders surrogacy shock storyline. And the yeah. characters weren't as strong anymore. So I think that it was kind of the, yeah. the pivot, really, the fulcrum of when it became what it is now, which is I don't really understand what it is now. Well, no, no. In fact, the last time I saw any of it, someone got pushed under a train, which I was impressed by because they had a train had <laughs> like a tube set I think I saw that by chance was it on before something it was on before one of the faulty towers repeats yeah, last that was year it. lockdown yes, I was yeah. like I saw that and I was like what the hell has this program become <laughs> I don't like it didn't they have weird you know, music behind it as well I believe made so made times yeah. worse I'm tuneful <laughs> speaking of tuneful I was like, this has it is pretty 1986 to the point of the lyrics we're going to make something out of nothing that's fine we're fair with that going to turn a spark into a flame again that's fine be careful obviously we're going to make something out of nothing again established have to take a chance to win the game 
and suddenly a no one will become special to you. That's a Russell Grant horoscope. Why would you want that? <laughs> Why would you want no one to... Like, what? who's this? Hello. <laughs> I'm Keith. I always like the verse where it goes, listen to the colours that are coming from your stereo, which, you know, stereo was like a big impressive word then. <laughs> yeah, stereo and video, the two most overused words in 1980s pop by far. And there wasn't even stereo video at that point. Yeah, you didn't hear Nikam mentioned a lot, <laughs> did you? Oh, Video Plus would be going to the 90s, Do you, you know, come on. who advertised Nikam, not even when it was launched, but when they were announcing it would be along soon? No. Vivian Stanshaw. Really? Toshiba did an advert in the late 80s to the tune that Terry keeps his clips on. Stereo will be great on my new Toshiba, but you'll oh, just have it? to wait on my new Toshiba Nikam Stereo. Ah, Coming right, to so Toshiba, it's digital, don't you know? Right, because obviously I remember on my new Toshiba, I didn't realise whereabouts in It was the, saying uh... one day you'll have a stereo television, but not yet. I, I remember an advert was something like, someone put a CD in and suddenly a picture appeared above it and it was like, I don't know what the point was like. It's like you're at the concert and there was a video of the concert on the screen. And I just thought, wow, it's a CD. And it can play like a program as well. Wow, that's impressive. This is a long time before DVD players. You know, yeah, it's weird the sort of things that become totemic at the time, which now look laughable, like this single for some people. But I hope this little conversation has kind of made people see it from a different perspective, or if not, just enjoy those outfits. Well, I hope so, because I, as I say, I really like it. I bought it at the time, partly because I like the storyline, partly because I like the T-shirt Dean. Let's be honest about that. But I really vividly remember some details of it, like Ian talking about a drum sound called Breaking Glass and Dirty Den saying, whoa, 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 don't you be breaking any pint glasses, son. And <laughs> there was a bit where they slowly indicated that Harry was getting on everyone's nerves. And how they did it with Eddie was in the rehearsal when Harry was trying to outline their manifestos with journalists, Eddie kept going like, whip, whip, whew, on his guitar. And he'd say, Eddie, stop it, will you? And then eventually he said, oi, Jimi Hendrix, knock it on the head, will you? We're trying to work here. And... <laughs> <laughs> Eddie pulled our face at the camera. Actually, that was used in a Radio 1 comedy show called The Knowledge. as like part of the History of Rock opening montage in the opening titles, which alongside all the big, you know, we're bigger than Jesus on statements. But I mentioned it on Twitter. And Gareth Potter, the actor who played Harry, who has been in things like Torchwood and so on, replied to me in character yeah. as Harry. It was brilliant. <laughs> I, didn't even, I didn't even know it was on there. I didn't follow him or anything. He must yeah. have just seen it somehow. Or he's just got a hot search for <laughs> Jimi Hendrix pack it in. It's just, it's <laughs> Knock it on the head. Get it right. It's not as offensive if you say Sorry. pack it in. He wouldn't have pulled the face yeah. of the camera then. Well, it would. It might be a different face. You just don't know. These are the things we'll never understand. So, Tim, if you could make something out of nothing, why would it be morph? Well, you can't make morph out of nothing. You need plasticine. <laughs> Tim, thank you for being on your own programme. <laughs> Good night. Thank you for hosting. <laughs> da, 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 da.
Top of the Box Volume 2 by Tim Worthington. The story behind every album released by BBC Records and Tapes, from Play School Play On to Russell Grant's Zodiac Jukebox. Comedy, sound effects, show tunes, folk, singing soap stars, the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, and more albums of Burton that you ever knew was possible to exist. More details, timworthington.org.